Porter Jr. Cheap seats, Junior! Olay! <laughs> hey! Welcome back, baseball fans, to the Banish to the Pen podcast. A group baseball blog by fans of the podcast Effectively Wild. The daily podcast from Baseball Perspectives. I am your host, Ryan Sullivan, editor-in-chief of NatsGM.com and the baron of all baseball podcasts. This week, I am proud to be joined by author at Baseball Prospectus and the owner of one of the greatest Twitter handles on the Twitter, Meg Rowler, Rowley. Part, that's all right. The Twitter, it gets people every time. You're not the first. Well, Megan Rowley, welcome to the show, <laughs> Megan. I apologize for the stumble, but uh, it is uh, a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. And uh, all of us at uh, Banished to the Pen, including myself, are big fans of your work. So thank you very much for uh, taking some time out this evening and uh, for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I think the first place I, th- I really want to get into, and, and I know uh, a lot of the group this week has helped me with the questions, so... Uh, it's, it's kind of a group effort, but uh, I think we all want to start with uh, just kind of how you got into sports writing and a little bit about your background uh, as such a big uh, Seattle Mariners fan. Sure. So, I mean, the, the Mariners fandom came first, so I guess we can start with that. I mean, I grew up in Seattle. I, I live here again now uh, as a grown-up, and my whole family is here. And um, my, my stepmom was actually the one who kind of instilled the baseball fandom in me. Um, her grandfather was a huge Mariners fan when he was alive, and that was sort of a, a special thing for the two of them. And so I grew up going to games at the Kingdom back in the day when the Kingdom was a thing, um, and really enjoying some late '90s, early 2000s Mariners teams. So if you, you know, if you lived in Seattle in the late 90s and you managed to avoid loving Griffey, I don't quite know what was wrong with you. So that team was pretty hard to to dislike or resist. So. That was kind of how I became a baseball fan. And then I went to college on the East Coast. And, you know, back in that day, we didn't quite have the um, streaming capability we have now. So I, you know, kept track of baseball but and kept track of the Mariners. But I wasn't really watching them that regularly because their games were never on and they started really late. And, <laughs> you know, at the deeper into the 2000s, you got the worse that team became. So <laughs> it was sort of a bummer. Um, and then after college and working on the East Coast for a couple of years, I went to grad school in the Midwest and got an hour back toward West Coast time and a more (laughs) forgiving graduate student schedule and kind of got back into watching the Mariners on a daily basis. And then when I moved home to Seattle after uh, leaving grad school, you know, I had really enjoyed uh, writing kind of my whole life. I was a political science major. I was in a poli-sci PhD program and was actually trying to look at the intersection of sports and politics and how the one affects the other. And um, as soon as writing about that became more interesting than writing about Thomas Hobbes, I kind of knew it was time <laughs> to be done with grad school. So um, I I started writing for Lookout Landing uh, out here in Seattle. And then um, kind of later into the 2015 season was lucky enough to have Rob Nyer ask me to uh, freelance for just a bit outside RIP just about outside. Mm. And uh, and that, you know, kind of led 
from one thing to another. And that was where I think Sam became aware of my work and um, brought me on to the BP annual and then, you know, brought me on staff at, at BP. So sort of a, a winding journey, um, but it's been it's been a lot of fun. Goodness, that's a great uh, backstory. I didn't even know that when we were chatting off air. I wish I had known. I would have asked. I'd love to ask you a ton of questions about stadiums and municipalities building them and all that stuff. But uh, maybe on maybe another day and another time. Oh yeah, that's a that's a <laughs> podcast unto itself. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, I do want to stay uh, a little bit with the Mariners, uh, if I can, certainly now and for most of this show and most sure. of my questions. Um, First place I kind of have to start is just uh, the state of the franchise. Uh, we're sitting at the All-Star break. We're recording this, and I think they're one game ahead of uh, 500. Um, you know, they're behind both teams uh, in Texas, both the Rangers and the Astros. And I- I- I'd love to just get your take on kind of the state of the franchise, both, you know, here and now in 2016 and, and you know, a little bit down the road as well. Yeah, it's sort of funny. I think that, um, you know, at the beginning of the the year, if you had told me that we uh, were going to be watching a Mariners team at the break that was a game over 500 and had managed that despite um, most of its starting rotation doing some amount of time on the disabled list and two key position player starters doing time on the disabled list, I would feel pretty good about that because um, the 2015 Mariners were pretty bad and um, that seems like a marked improvement. I think that um, it's been a little disappointing as a fan in the last month and a half. They've certainly been unlucky. Uh, the, you know, the thing that people think Jack Sorensic did poorly was all of the, you know, trades and stuff. But the real sort of Achilles heel of the franchise over the last um, little bit has been their drafting and development. And so when you had guys get hurt, there really just wasn't the depth in the minor leagues to to compensate for that. You know, there isn't another starting caliber center fielder, at least right now, um, to come in when, you know, Leonis Martin has to go on the 15-day DL. So um, their June was pretty disastrous. They had gone into the month sort of tied for first place in the AL West, and they were 10 games over 500, and everybody felt really great about it. And then, um, you know, the offense continued to produce pretty well over that stretch. Um, they've certainly been um been driven by some really great offensive performances by Robinson Cano and Kyle Seeger and Nelson Cruz, but the pitching was just a disaster. You know, the starters weren't going deep into games and you were getting into that, you know, kind of unfortunate cycle where the starters can't go deep, the bullpen is taxed. So even though they were working from a lead a lot of the time, they just couldn't close out games. So I think if you look on uh, on our standings at BP now, they're one of the unluckiest teams by their um, Pythagorean win expectation in baseball, and they're going up against, you know, the Rangers, who are one of the luckiest teams by that same measure. So I don't think this is a bad team right now. I think that they are not deep, and um, I think the the pitching is going to be sort of a question mark going into the second half because we don't know what version of Felix Hernandez we're getting back when he comes back from his time on the DL. So they're sort of in a weird spot. I don't know what they're going to do at the deadline. I think they're going to be one of the more interesting teams to watch at the deadline because they don't really have the prospects to make sort of big blockbuster trades. Um, But they're also aware that the window they have with this core is sort of rapidly closing, right? Like Cano and Cruz and Hernandez in particular, they're just going to, you know, keep getting older because that's how time works. And so if they want to win, I think their window is the next season or two. And um, 
I don't know what pieces they're really going to view as disposable going into the deadline to make that happen. Now they might just look at it and say, we're going to try to get healthier and stop making really stupid base running mistakes and hope that's good enough. And with this offense, it might well be, which is a really weird thing to say about a Mariners team. <laughs> like a really weird thing to say about a Mariners team. I have more confidence in our offense than our pitching staff as a fan. So that's, that's a unique position to be in for me. But, um, you know, they're, they're going to have to consider rebuilding at some point and how extensive that rebuild ends up being, I think will depend on how the next couple of uh, drafts shake out and if they can maybe course correct some of the prospects they have down in the minors right now. But, um, you know, this, this team is uh, not very well ranked from a prospect perspective and there's a reason for that. And um, we're going to have to see if, Jerry DePoto can do a little bit better in that regard than he did when he was in LA. So that's a very long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> but they're they're a really interesting and kind of fun, weird team right now. And I think that they certainly have a run in them. You know, they're not um, they're not a bad team. I don't know if that run will be enough to counteract, you know, the the Rangers and the Astros, but um, you know, they they've been hanging with those guys pretty good until the last month so we'll kind of have to see what the second half holds and and i want to take that jim bowden segue if i can real quickly and and talk about how seattle compares to the two texas teams because it seems like both the rangers and the astros have certainly deeper farm systems i feel like the astros probably have a better team on paper than seattle but maybe i'm putting words in your mouth where how do you how do you feel like the the teams compare you know, going forward the next, I don't know, 75 games of the season. So I think that this year, I I don't disagree that on paper, I think the Astros are a better team. Um, I think that, you know, the Rangers are probably also in that camp, although they have their own starting rotation injuries to contend with. Um, They are, it seems like getting Darvish back in pretty short order, but they do not have a lot of pitching depth and, um, you know, going into the break, we certainly saw the effect that that could have on on their team. So, um, I think that this year they can probably they being the Mariners can probably hang with those guys pretty okay. I mean, I don't think that they're going to run away with the division, and I think it would take a lot for them to overcome both of those teams to win the AL West. But I think that whichever of them ends up getting you know knocked down into the wild card race, you know, the Mariners are five games back now. Uh, from the second wild card, so it's going to take some doing, but you know they're also, I think, underperforming their Pythag by five games or something like that. So they're they're not a bad team, and they could get hot and it could be fine. Um, but I think that where you really start to see the, the Rangers and the Astros separating themselves is, like you said, in the coming years with their farm system. I mean, the prospects the Mariners have just they really can't compete with what's sort of close to major league ready right now in both of those organizations. Um, you know, they, on the, on the hitting side, they have a couple of guys who have shown better in the last season. And, you know, when Jerry DePoto came in, he was really focused on this control the zone philosophy in the minor leagues and, and trying to get guys to work deeper into counts and not strike out so much and sort of be patient um, hitters. 
And that seems to have worked pretty well to turn some of those teams around in sort of their short-term performance. But long-term, the talent's just not as deep. So it's going to take a couple of years for them to replant the farm. Got a little lucky in this draft. I mean, Kyle Lewis was not projected to fall to the Mariners at 11, and he did. And he is not long for Everett. Um, He's in short-season ball right now, but he is is definitely – um, sort of above that competition level. So I think that they do have a couple of guys they're excited about, but this isn't like the Rangers where, you know, they're struggling to find places to play jerks and profar. Like we would right. love that in <laughs> Seattle. We would, we as fans would be happy to take a jerks and profar off your hands. Like give us profar. That'd be great. Um, so we just don't have that sort of, um, you know, bunching up at the top and you're going to see it in the way that they're able to put guys on the field and you're going to see it in the guys that they're able to trade for. So it's going to be a disadvantage, I think, for the Mariners for the next little bit. And how long that disadvantage continues to last is going to really depend on how well DePoto does. So, And it's we'll really, really hurt the franchise, their decision to take Denny Holtzson in, at number two rather than oh, Lindor or Rendon or Jose Fernandez or... And, you know, name the seven other great players that went in the top 10 there. I mean, it, that pick is really the tough, is it, really set this franchise back in, in a lot of ways. I, I wish that I could tell you that that was the the worst of it. <laughs> I wish that I could tell you that, but, um, you know, he was the only really kind of funky pick that didn't work out. I mean, of course, all of this stuff is totally hindsight is twenty twenty. Oh, sure. Except that you kind of. Except that you kind of know sometimes. Yeah, I mean, the, the Peterson know. pick was terrible. I mean, that was not a right, good like, pick at the time. Let's, let's fill I mean, up our minds. was not a good pick. The, yeah. Yeah, like I wrote about this one of the first things I ever wrote for Lookout Landing. I mean, so that Holtzen draft, they could have taken, I mean, they could have taken Sonny Gray. They could have taken Jose Fernandez. They could have taken Trevor Bauer. They could have taken George Springer. All of those guys came off the board after Danny Holtzen. 2012. Look, I'm a huge Mike Zanino apologist. His pitch framing is sublime, but they could have had Corey Seager. Like, Corey Seager could be a Seattle Mariner right now. So could Addison Russell and Joey Gallo and Michael Walker. Like, all of those guys could have been Mariners. And every team can do that, right? Every team can go back through their history and say, gosh, if we had only, you know, known what Mike Trout was going to be, we would have taken Mike Trout instead of Dustin Ackley. But it's a lot of years of that in Seattle, and it isn't even just that the drafting has been bad. It's that the player development that's w- come after that has been pretty disastrous. I was going to say, because I thought both Ackley and Zanino, I would have bet on being really solid major league players yeah. or better, and neither one of them has developed into hardly much, frankly, for where they were drafted. So, Right, and and I think Zanino, I mean, I'm over-invested in, in his story, so I can tell you more about it than you care to know, but he's a really good example of what was wrong with the prior regime. He was rushed to the majors, and yeah. when I say rushed, he was a catcher who had like 520 minor league plate appearances before he was called up mm. and expected to catch full-time. And, you know, it's it's a weird thing to think of him now because right now we think of him as a guy who can't hit and is, a you know, amazing defensive catcher i mean if you look at bp's catcher framing stats he's the best catcher in triple a and if you want to get really irresponsible and compare him to (laughs) major leaguers which you should definitely not do because that's silly but if you were gonna do that he's he ranks up you know with the buster posies of the world and he's done that every year that he's been in the majors but he was an offensive prospect like he was a bat first catcher and you know the the development strategy has just not been there. So I think that, you know, DePoto got 
an appropriate amount of grief for the fact that, you know, the Angels farm system is in the shape that it's in and that they have not put the talent around Mike Trout to win. But if you look at the change that they're seeing, at least in the philosophy of the organization, even in this first year, I'm a lot more confident in the guys he's brought in being able to turn some of these guys into something than, you know, I was in the prior regime. So... Well, and let me build off that uh, that point that you just made, because that leads into another question. It's just how has the transition been of the new general manager to Poto and, and the new ownership? What have you seen that's been different? And are you optimistic about the future of the franchise going forward? So I'll take those kind of separate questions. So if people aren't aware, um, the Mariners at the end of August, I think, are going through an ownership change and it's not a new ownership group what's happening is nintendo of america which has a or i don't know if they're nintendo of america but nintendo which has a majority stake in the team is selling the vast majority of that majority stake to the existing minority owners all of whom are local um so they're guys and gals and you know holding companies that are already invested in the mariners Um, They're all based in Washington, most of them in the Seattle area, um, and they are going to be the new majority ownership of the team. I don't think that that's going to change a whole lot. Um, Those guys, you know, those owners are already part of the fold. I don't think that they, you know, we don't have to worry about relocation or anything like that. I think that um, we might see a bit more um, in the way of payroll, potentially, depending on their sort of approach to um, the team and the you know, what they see as the team's window, but I don't think it's going to change all that much. Um, there has been a lot of joking in the Seattle media market that all that Pokemon Go money that Nintendo is pocketing will not be coming to the Mariners. We're all very disappointed. Um, but I think, you know, it'll be a fairly smooth transition, and the city has had sort of a contentious relationship with the ownership group. They've been largely absent um, and sort of had their local representative be the face of the ownership group, but they're not really that engaged with the franchise, or at least that's the perception. So I think that it's generally seen as a positive thing. You know, anytime more local ownership is taking control of a team, you sort of feel a little more comfortable that relocation isn't something that they'd consider. Not that we were really all that concerned about it, but you never know with, with well, new ownership groups. Well, and you have to be after uh, what happened with the Supersonics or the Sonics. I mean... It has to be well, a consideration. And, yeah, and the new sort of president of the sort of majority owner stake is actually um, a Microsoft guy who worked really hard to try to keep the Sonics in Seattle uh, when they left in, in 2008. So he has sort of goodwill with the the city in that regard. Um, so I, I don't think that that's going to really effectively change all that much for the Mariners. I mean, you might see a little bit more payroll, but I, again, they haven't really said anything specific about that yet. Um, in terms of DePoto, I think the uh, the feedback has generally been positive. I mean, some of his moves haven't worked out quite the way I think he was hoping, but in general, you know, they haven't been they haven't been bad. He's caught some guys sort of on the upswing when they'd had down years. Um, and he is bringing, not only is he bringing a more analytic mindset to the front office in a way that he's, you know, really comfortable talking about, but the communication that fans are getting from from that franchise and the communication that they are observing from the major league club all through the organization to try to, you know, right the ship on some of the player development issues, I think has been really encouraging to people. I mean, certainly to people 
like us who look at baseball and sort of appreciate the analytics uh, perspective on it and think that that you know can tell you good ways to run a baseball team to have a guy you know pick up and trade Leonis Martin and then in his justification for um, why he thinks that guy's bat is going to rebound reference an uncharacteristically low BABIP the previous year you're just sitting there like oh this is great this guy speaks my language he knows what I'm talking about so I think that part has been really encouraging for people but um, you know it's like any GM, he's going to make moves that fans don't like. And I think his first trade deadline will be really interesting to people. But he seems to get the urgency for sort of winning pretty soon, if not now, and um, has mostly made moves that have not been sort of damaging to the flexibility of the franchise in later years. So, like, all the guys that he has brought in have been pretty team friendly and short term deals. Um, and so it gives the impression that they have sort of flexibility to move on from from guys if they need to or go a different direction. So I think generally people are pretty happy with him. But, um, you know, it's going to be it's it's been 15 years since this city has had playoff baseball. And so any GM going into that situation is going to have sort of a baseline level of frustration that's, I think, higher than you might see in other places. And he's going to have to contend with that sense, you know, over his tenure, however long that ends up being. First of all, I didn't know it was 15 years and that explains a whole lot. And second of all, that's a great point. Oh, yeah. Because, because oh, yeah. It's, been, I, it's been a long time. Because <laughs> I was going to say, because just, I mean, I don't even know how many thousands of miles away here in, in Maryland, but I looked at the off season and I thought, wow, for a guy that didn't have a whole lot of prospects to deal and, and had a lot of holes to fill on a roster, he, he did a nice job of turning a lot of things yeah. around. You mentioned the Martine, you know, Martine and the deal a couple times, but I, I thought he was very creative. And unfortunately, like you kind of referenced, when you make, I forget how many deals it was, but he turned over half the 40-man, you are going to lose some deals sometimes. But I, 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 I'm just kind of curious how you felt going into the season with the job he did, because from an outsider's point of view, I thought he had done a, you know, had been pretty creative and shrewd. I would agree with that. I mean, I thought that he he had limited he had limited treasure both in terms of cash and prospects to deal. And I think the only two that um, the only trade where the process didn't seem great to me was the. I mean, if you're in Maryland, was the Clevenger for Trumbo deal. So I wasn't a huge fan of Mark Trumbo um, being on the Mariners mostly because him being on the Mariners meant Wellington Castillo wasn't, which mean, meant Mike Zanino was up and catching most <laughs> of last year, which he really needed to go to Tacoma, and they just didn't have anyone to replace him, so he stayed. But I, I mean, I, I didn't... Um, I wasn't a huge fan of Trumbo. I don't think we can fault Jerry DePoto for not predicting that Mark Trumbo would lead baseball in home runs. <laughs> I don't think we can <laughs> really ding him for not anticipating that because that, that's pretty weird. I mean, that's kind of a weird thing that we're dealing with. Uh, but I think the part of that trade that I didn't like was that it felt very much like pure salary dump because very it true. was clear that, you know, the Mariners did not want to pay Mark Trumbo $9 million. And as a you know fan and an observer, I didn't particularly want to pay him $9 million either, but I... I had hoped that, um, especially with a new regime, that that Depoto would be given a bit more payroll flexibility than that. And you know, he, he to your point, he just didn't have a lot to deal, and he didn't have a lot of cash to make up the difference. So, I 
I understand why, you know, given the constraints he seems to have been given that deal ended up happening the way that it did, but it was it was disappointing because you would hope that he'd, you know, he'd get a little like new GM bonus. Like go <laughs> go go get a guy. But I, I also think Jared Poe just doesn't really like Mark Trumbo that much because he deals him every time he comes into an organization. <laughs> so maybe I'm being overly critical and he was just thrilled to get rid of the guy. Right. That is true. That's a great point now that I think of a great point. So uh one last question before I kind of move off the current uh Mariners is uh do they make the playoffs this year? Is this the year? Oh God. Um You know you want to say yes. Well, I mean I really want to say yes. <laughs> I, I do. I think it's gonna be hard, but I think that they will you tell me if this is too much of a of a cheap answer. I think they'll be in that wild card mix right up until the end. Whether they actually go, I don't know. I think that it's going to be tricky, but I think that they they have the talent on the roster to make a wild card run and I think they'll be right there in it. But it might be a 2014 situation where they miss it by a game. But I hope that doesn't happen because I really want Felix in the postseason. <laughs> that would be great just to see. The, I, think we all, I think we all want that. And to see uh, what is it in the left field corner just to see that the Kings court go crazy would be amazing. Yep. God. Mm. Yeah. All right. It could happen. It, I kind of I kind of hope it does, frankly. So. I mean, I really hope it does because <laughs> Seattle, I mean, there's some some sad, tortured folks out here. I was going to say, it's, it sounds like you guys need it really badly. <laughs> Longest active playoff drought in Major League Baseball. Thanks, Blue Jays. Yeah. Had to make it last year. Dang it. So uh, let me transition if I can. I want to ask you a little bit more old school Mariners and talk a little bit, uh, some of the better players in better days, if, if we can. Um, sure. Uh, one question that we had from the group uh, that somebody wanted me to ask was uh, to have you compare and talk a little bit about Edgar Martinez and compare him to uh, David Ortiz. And, and I'm guessing the question is heading a little bit towards why is Edgar not in the hall or not even really right on that cusp? It seems like yet we feel like we're talking about Ortiz as kind of that slam dunk, you know, five years from now, he's going to be a Hall of Famer. Yeah. So I should say right off the bat that I am a uh, I'm a big hall person. I I think that the value of the Hall of Fame, if it has one, in addition to recognizing great players, is to tell the story of baseball, and that you tell that story in a more effective and complete way if you include, you know, compelling great players of a variety of sorts. So, you know, the longevity guys, um, you know, the peak guys. I think that all of those stories have a place in the Hall of Fame, even the really difficult stories that baseball has, because you have to, you know, address that. So whether it's, um, you know, steroids or domestic violence, I don't think that that should necessarily preclude guys from being in the Hall if we can talk about their experiences and stories honestly. And then you have Edgar, who doesn't have any of those problems (laughs) (laughs) and is... The best designated, like, was the best designated hitter of his day, is best designated hitter in baseball who isn't in the Hall of Fame and isn't in there for some reason. I have no problem with David Ortiz being in the Hall of Fame. I am, as a Mariners fan, deeply resentful of the fact that he will, in all likelihood, sail into the Hall of Fame on his first ballot. And here's poor Edgar Martinez, like, having to uh, accumulate 
you know, time until I guess until the veterans committee votes him in because I I don't know that he's gonna make it, you know, during uh I'm looking up Eckers War versus. Um, sorry. I'm and and correct me if I'm wrong, but the kingdom was not very hitter friendly, right? I remember that being a very large nah. park. I mean, nice in the uh, gaps for doubles and such, nah. but not for home runs. I mean, it's a f- it was a fast surface, okay. like a really fast surface, because it was. I mean, it was basically concrete painted green. I mean, it wasn't actually, but it was effectively that. Edgar's career war. Da 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 da. da. Sixty-eight point three by Baseball Reference. Yeah. Okay. Hall of Fame. I I guess my thing is, I mean, we there are all of the reasons why, like all of the obvious reasons why, Edgar is a qualified entrant into the Hall of Fame. Right. His career was spectacular. He was incredibly productive. He was productive for a really long time. He never had any of the taint of PEDs, so we don't have that as an excuse. He's a He's a good human being. I mean, that's not a reason, but it doesn't hurt. Um, and, you know, when people talk about the difference between him and Ortiz, like ESPN put out a list of best first basemen in history today, and they included David Ortiz on that list. Well, Edgar Martinez played twice as many, <laughs> I think, like twice as many innings in the field at third than Ortiz ever played at first. So, it's a position that exists in the American League. The best of that position should be in the Hall of Fame, and the best of that position is at is Edgar Martinez. So, you know, I just, there's not like a good case. There's no good case. There's not a good statistical case for anyone who isn't having some weird, like, designated hitter thing. There's not a good positional case. And, I mean, like, the there are parts of Safeco Field that are named after him. The road in front of the stadium is named after Edgar Martinez. Um, it's just there's no good there's no good reason. Well, then. I think it, there's, if there's no good. if we're being very fair, if he played his career in Boston or in New York or in sure. East Coast media market, I think he's already in and he's you know laughing about this kind of a conversation. I mean, he probably gets in on his second or third ballot type of a thing. I well, think. and I, I guess the part of it that is so strange to me is that one of the things that gets pointed to now, granted, Edgar played in Seattle and he didn't have a World Series experience, right? So we don't have a World Series memory of Edgar, but we have great postseason memories of Edgar. I mean, like the double is an iconic moment in baseball. It's not just for the Mariners. And he was, you know, he was the guy who hit that double. <laughs> Wasn't like Ken Griffey Jr. just got to run around to home on his own. So I think, you know, guys will say, oh, well, Ortiz has this incredible postseason history, and he does, and that's something that we can, you know, celebrate and decide if we really care about that enough to get a guy into um, into the hall or not. But, you know, it's not as if Edgar is devoid of those memories. So even though he played in the small market, he had some national exposure. I mean, the, the designated hitter award is named after him. <laughs> It's amazing. The only, I guess, the only point, and and I'll bring it up because you brought him up, was he was never the best player on his own team because he had Griffey on, you know, patrolling center field for most of the time that he was in Seattle. That's that is true. It's and, not a fair point. Uh, I just think it's it's, it's unfortunately but, a part of the factor or whatever it is that I'm looking to try to say. Well, I guess that um, every other guy who played in that era is lucky that Griffey wasn't on his team because there would be a number of dudes shaking in their boots as a result of that. <laughs> That's true. Um, <laughs> I, I, 
let me transition and, and just have you talk about uh, growing up in Seattle and watching Ken Griffey play. I think, you know, so many of us got to watch him, you know, once in a while on Sunday night baseball. But what was it just growing up with the kid and, and watching him, you know, and then unfortunately get traded to Cincinnati? You know, I, uh, I don't know that we knew how good we had it in the beginning as kids, like, cause he was just one of our guys. And then you started to get a, a broader sense of baseball and sort of appreciate baseball for what it was. It wasn't just your guys playing, but you know, appreciating who they were playing against and getting to see more games. And he was just, he was so cool. You know, he was cool in a way that wasn't just about baseball and he was he was our guy you know we were this little city up in the middle of nowhere that people think is in Canada I mean that's less true now but like Seattle was not you know much to write home about when I was a really young kid until the tech boom and hmm. the coolest the, the the coolest guy in baseball the best player in baseball the most incredible sort of highlight guy who other kids would see his amazing catches in center field or they'd see those beautiful home runs and that sweet swing. That was a Seattle Mariner. Like that guy was our guy. And it was this like, kind of weird relationship where on the one hand you were incredibly proud that this, you know, Fiam was on your team, but you were also kind of weirdly protective of him. Like you wanted everyone, I wanted everyone to know. I wanted everyone to remember, no guys, he's a Seattle Mariner. And he plays for for my team, you know. Bratty little Megan was like, "This is he's one of our guys. Like you get to like him, but you don't get to like him the same way that we do." Which is, of course, ridiculous. And that was what made him so amazing was that he he transcended being on a small market team that played late on the east, you know, when broadcast would get to the east coast, and none of that mattered because he was just that good, and his personality was that transcendent. And you know, I don't know that I'll ever. I don't know that I'll ever get to experience that kind of fandom again because even when you look at, you know, someone like Felix Hernandez, the state of the franchise was just in a really different place and he doesn't, you know, he's a pitcher so he doesn't play every day. But getting to to watch Griffey every single day was, I mean, it was a joy. It was just this great joy. It's funny you say that cuz a, a lot of your answer reminds me of the way I feel about Bryce Harper right now. I feel like you just, yeah. it's such a treat to get to watch him play every day. And I, I almost, I feel protective when people take shots at him because it's like, no, he's our guy and he's a good guy. And it, it's just the parallels to your answer really struck me. So, well, and it's funny because I, I do think the parallel that you will draw between, say, Griffey and a guy like Felix is that there's this sense that that, not Griffey on his own, but that that 95 team really saves baseball in Seattle you know it kept baseball here um and I I imagine that if the Mariners had left Seattle would have gotten an expansion team at some point but that 95 team like really saved baseball in this city and Griffey didn't do it on his own but he was sort of the most public face of that idea right and I think that in a way you, you look at a guy like Felix and he saved baseball in Seattle in a in a really different way but he gave fans here something to really hold on to and I'll be interested to see kind of how when both of their careers are over and we're having the Felix Hall of Fame conversation at the end of you know after his career has come to a close how those conversations line up with one another because of course the difference is that Felix never left and and Griffey did and you know he did for reasons that I didn't really understand as a 
younger person and kind of have more sympathy for now. Um, but you know, that it's, it's been interesting to watch as Griffey has, as his hall of fame time came close, sort of how the city has talked through that experience of him leaving. Cause I think that Seattle is in a really good place with Griffey and has been for a number of years, but there, there were a couple of years there where it was kind of contentious. You know, people were really disappointed in him for leaving, which isn't fair for a lot of reasons, but you know, was the reaction at the time. So he's seen overwhelmingly positive at this point. Cause like you say, I, I oh, felt yeah. like at the time that he left for the first three, four years, he was, you know, definitely a heel for sure. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when he left, it was really hard. I remember for me, I was just really sad that he wasn't a Mariner anymore. And, you know, I kind of, I naively, for better or worse, like believed him that he wanted to be closer to family. And that's why he wanted to go to Cincinnati. And I was like, okay, well, I like my family, so I get that. (laughs) Um, I think it would have been really different if we hadn't then had the experience, you know, immediately after that of Mike Cameron. You know, if Cammy hadn't been in Seattle, I think that some of that story for Griffey is actually really different. Mike Cameron was not Ken Griffey Jr. But if you're going to get an approximation <laughs> after mm-hmm. the, you know, after Ken Griffey Jr. leaves, that's a pretty darn good one. Um, you know, he played an incredible center field and was just this super affable dude and had way better sort of offensive production than I think people remember. And so, you know, legacy is always sort of built with multiple participants. And I think that the degree to which Mike Cameron sort of contributed to Seattle being able to come to peace with Griffey leaving and then welcome him back after his, you know, career took a turn and he came back to Seattle. I think that that is sort of an underrated aspect of his story because, you know, Cameo was a lot of fun to watch. And I think underrated is a perfect word for him. I think, you know, yeah. spending his career in Seattle, and then I think it was in San Diego, if my memory serves, spending it on the West Coast and kind of smaller markets hurt, yeah, you know, his appreciation of, of how good he was. I mean, he was a fantastic center fielder who was a 2020 guy. Yeah. Four home runs in a game one time. Yeah, that's exactly Against right. The White Sox. <laughs> uh, another topic that I want to ask about is it, you've mentioned the 95 team a couple times, but uh, I think. Other people, when they think of the Mariners, think of the 2001 team, the one with, what was it, 116 wins in the regular season or whatever yep. it was. One of the best teams, maybe the best team in, you know, this kind of modern era or, or you know, certainly in our generation. What are your what are your recollections of that team? And are they the best team that, you know, we've ever seen? Um, well, I've I've uh, I've probably shared this memory of them before, but. It's really weird to to look back on your memories of a particular season and not really remember any losses. Like that's a weird way to remember a baseball team is to not ever really remember them losing. And I think that the only time I remember, I mean they lost in the postseason and I remember that, but in in terms of the regular season, that 2001 team, I think the only time I really remember them losing was that crazy Indians comeback Hmm. where they, I mean, they were up by, gosh, I don't even remember how many runs. And then the Indians came back to, to defeat them. And it wasn't the only, you know, remaining loss they had that year, but it was sort of the most memorable one. But apart from that, I don't remember, I don't remember them losing. 
Like, I don't remember going to a game that they lost. I don't remember watching a game on TV that they lost. I know that they did because they only won 116 games, not 162. But I don't remember it. Like, I have no recollection of them losing until the postseason and that one crazy comeback by the Indians. And so it's this very... It's this very weird way to interact with a baseball team because baseball teams lose all the time. Really good baseball teams lose all the time. Most baseball teams don't win more than, you know, 90, 95 games in a season. So um, to to have your memory of a, of a particular year be defined almost exclusively by winning when it comes to baseball is just very strange. <laughs> but that's my memory of the 2001 team. It was just like, well, yeah, they're just going to win because that's what this team does. They just win baseball games. <laughs> what a crazy thing. It's a really insightful take. That's funny you say that because obviously they won. But, yeah, when you think back all the time, you think about your team. Yeah, they lost this game. They lost opening day. They lost here and there. I mean, to think about it and reflect on the season and not think about losses is just amazing. Yeah, it's just, that's a weird that's a really weird way to interact with with a team and you know, I don't think that I think that that would be a hard experience to sort of replicate now because you know, it was 2001, there wasn't really social media. We weren't connected in quite that same way. I mean, I would I won't speak for Cubs fans and I don't, you know, they're not going to win 116 games, but I doubt strongly that even, you know, the most um, diehard Cubs fan who sees the Cubs as being able to do no wrong would say that their memory of the season is defined by not losing. I mean, especially after the month that they just had, but <laughs> Touche. You know Yeah. Yeah. But so that's a weird you know, I don't know that that particular experience, if we if we don't have another team that sort of makes a run at that record, I don't know that that particular experience will be replicated again. Um and I'm not sure with the way the salary structures are these days and the way that dominant farm systems can't be built up and, and the way, you know, salaries and everything else is, is is managed. I don't think that we'll ever see a team like that again. Yeah, I mean... I mean, never say never, it, I understand, but... Sure. And I think that, um, you know, the Cubs are probably the closest because when you think about what they... All the things when they were in sort of the that really, really amazing run at the beginning of the season, it seemed like they could do everything well, right? They were pitching well, the defense was good, and they were an offensive juggernaut. And that sort of, that three-headed monster part is harder to replicate at least over an entire season now, I think, than it than it used to be. But, I mean, it's sort of weird to hold up the Mariners in 2001 as a... Um, as benchmark because in addition to doing all of those things they like a lot of teams that win a lot of games got got lucky sometimes and you know sort of had um the luck that we are used to thinking about with baseball where they won a bunch of of close games they were incredibly healthy that year which you know i think um is sort of an underrated part of their success no Um, question but yeah Mm. So if I can, uh, I'd like to take a half a step back and ask, you know, a little bit more general questions uh, before I let you go. Um, sure. But somebody in the group asked a really, uh, really good question that I kind of want to ask you because, uh, I don't know, they tried to relate it to me, but this is a question for you is um, since, uh, you know, as you've said uh, throughout, you, you're such a diehard Mariners fan and, and have been, you know, your whole life. Have you seen any change in your fandom now that you're writing for you know, baseball prospectus and national platform, and you've been doing it now, you know, almost, you know, parts of two seasons now. Have you experienced any difference in your fandom? 
Um, well, I think the bigger sort of, and this is probably true of, of a lot of fans, regardless of whether or not they write about baseball, but I mean, I think the biggest change that you sort of have as the fan is when you start to appreciate how important the analytics are and understand what they mean and sort of how they can help you understand the game in a different way. So I think that was probably a bigger difference. I think that when you're a fan of a team that's been bad for a really long time, it probably requires a little less of an alteration in your fandom than if you've been, than if you were mm-hmm. like a Yankees fan. And I don't say that as if every, you know, Yankees fan who was also a writer is biased or not able to sort of see their team clearly or anything like that. But, you know, when your team's really bad, um, it's hard to think that they're better than they are because <laughs> they're really bad. <laughs> No, you no one's looking at the at the 2013 or 2015 Mariners and going, oh, that's a good baseball team. It's like, no, that's a pretty bad baseball team, <laughs> and you'd have to be pretty delusional to not be able to see that. So, I think that um, for better or worse, when you're writing about baseball, you want to be as sort of objective and honest in your assessment of the game as possible, and that does force you to confront the guys who you maybe really like but aren't aren't as good as you think they are or hope they are and you have to be able to talk about teams and players in ways that are credible and sort of honest in their assessment so you know when I was just goofing around on the internet about the Mariners I could be really really silly about you know Mike Zanino it's a lot harder to like gloss over how bad Mike Zanino's bat is when people are paying attention to what you say about baseball and you want to be credible and you want to be, um, you know, self-critical of your assessment of, of players and teams. And so I think that it, it, if you're doing it right, it's a more sort of honest fandom. But I, I think that there's nothing wrong with being a fan if you're clear that, you know, you have you have to approach it differently once you sit down to do the task of writing about a thing versus how you're reacting in the moment when you're watching a game, you know, sitting at home on a Wednesday. Um, you know, I've, I'm very unabashed in my affection for particular Mariners. I hope that I'm pretty, uh, honest in their, you know, strengths and weaknesses because they all have them, but you know, the best writers are the ones that care about what they're writing about. And I think that for a lot of people, myself included, having a having your fandom of baseball rooted in a particular team sort of brings that affection and emotion to the surface. And then if you're able to harness that into just a general interest in baseball and finding something else cool and interesting to say about it, I think that's where you get the, the best writing. Um, and then you rely on your editors to call you on your crap, you know, so that if you're being, you know, too forgiving of a guy or your assessment of a team isn't quite right because they play in the same division as, you know, the, as the team that you happen to root for, you ask questions, you know, you make sure that you're, you're being honest and that your editors feel comfortable saying, Hey, this, you know, this isn't quite right, or this isn't quite how it went down. And, um, I think as long as you're open to that feedback, it's, it's pretty easy to avoid making terrible blunders. Although I will say if the mayors make the postseason this year, I'm just going to put a disclaimer up on my Twitter (laughs) (laughs) guys. I will do my best when I am writing, but as I am watching games, you're just going to have to just, 
you're just going to have to bear with me. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be fangirling or fanboying this one. Just uh, mailing it in right now, yeah. right off the bat. Yeah, I'm just going to let people know. I'm going to, you know, full disclosure, that's going to happen. Uh, you can mute if you need to, and then I'll catch you on the flip side, and that that might be the, the solution. But I don't know. I've heard that a lot of, a lot of writers say who have been – doing this a lot longer and to um, much greater acclaim than I have so far that you sort of lose that fandom and that passion over time because it's hard to maintain emotionally. And if you're also trying to sort of keep that up while being um, a good analyst, that can be hard to sort of reconcile. And I can see how that would how that would happen. And I am, I think, probably more critical of individual players and the team as a whole um, in the last couple of years than I was in the couple of years before that. But um, some of that could just be getting older, too. I mean, you know, what you were passionate about at 16 and and music or whatever it is, you know, you just some of it dissipates because you get so much busier with life. And I'm using those big air quotes, but I don't know. You know, when you're trying to be someone who knows, when you're trying to know the league and be able to talk about it confidently, you know, I can't just always watch Mariners games. Yeah. So that's part of it, too, is that you're just watching less of that team because I don't know, like maybe tonight Kershaw's pitching and I want (laughs) to watch Kershaw or, you know, I want to see how David Price is looking these days or, you know, so I, I, my, attention is also more fractured than it used to be on top of which I, you know, I do work a normal person job, not just a baseball writing job. So you have to sort of be um, thoughtful about how you're deploying your time. If you want to be able to speak knowledgeably and write knowledgeably about more than just the Mariners or whatever the team is, the Orioles, the Mets, whatever. And the final point I would just make is, you know, we all know Jonah Carey's and well, I guess an Expos fan. We know Peter Gammons is a Red Sox fan. Rob Nyer is a Kansas City fan. That doesn't mean they're not fantastically talented at what they do. I mean, you can be a fan of somebody and still be a fantastic writer. I don't think that precludes anything. So, just, yeah, I agree. You, I mean, you know. Jonah Jonah has it the best in a way. I mean, I, that's he true. Have it that is because good... his team doesn't exist, and that's terrible. But like, there's no harm in being an Expos fan. Yeah. That you know, that's actually a fantastic. That's a great point too. There's Absolutely, no, there's no postseason conflict for for Jonah. Although I I hope desperately that they get a team back because I imagine that would make him very happy. Yeah, I think that would be great. I, I talk about a column that he could write. Imagine it. Oh my man, gosh, that, that thing would be worse than you and I fanboying it or fangirling it with our teams getting in the playoffs and winning the World Series combined. Oh, that God. would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> It would be pretty great, though. I hope he gets to write that column. I want to read it. Yeah. Um, shout out to Jonah. So, um, la- last topic that I really want to ask you about is uh, baseball cards. Uh, I think so many yeah. of us. Um, I don't want to say we lose our interest in baseball cards, but you're into it, and then you, you know, as you get older, it, it dissipates. What have you? Kind of as I alluded to a minute ago, but you've actually, it seems to be, taken more the hobby up more as an adult than you even did as a kid. Yeah, we we uh, we were not baseball card people. That was not my that was not a thing that my my dad did, and wasn't a thing my stepmom did. So it wasn't a thing we really did as kids. Um, and so it's been more interesting to me as an adult, mostly because I, I'm I'm fascinated by this very specific subgenre of writing that is like writing the flare text on a, on the back of a baseball card. I want to I want to know those people. Like I want to know what they think about when they're writing it. It's just 
like there's something about having to um, sort of summarize a guy's entire promise and career in, I mean, probably as many characters as you have in a tweet that is really, really funny and fascinating to me. So um, I, I don't know. I just, I think they're cool. I like that they are always finished before the season starts. So, um, you know, you end up with guys who um, are like in the wrong uniform when their card comes out or um, I found a, a Corey Hart card from a couple of years ago where, you know, he was on the Mariners for a hot minute and then he went to the Pirates and I don't think he's playing anywhere right now. I don't Corey, think so either. Is Corey know. Hart still in baseball? Oh, Corey, poor guy. Those knees, man, they are terrible. Um, so is that big so, strike zone? Oh, yeah. Says Richie Sexton. Yeah. Mm, well, anyway, so so in in this card, Corey Hart is a pirate. He's in a pirate's uniform, except um, someone astutely noted that he is definitely photoshopped into a pirate's uniform because you can see that he is in Seattle. You can like see Safeco behind him. You can see Mariners behind him, but he's wearing home whites. And the Pirates had not played. The Pirates just played in Safeco, but they had not played in mm-hmm. Safeco during Corey Hart's tenure there. So it's just like really funny little things like that. Or like I have way more Mike Zanino baseball cards than probably Mike Zanino's family, honestly. <laughs> and there was there was a, a Chrome Top Series card of his, and they were doing career chase lines. And I'm sure that for guys like, you know, Bryce Harper, it was like Bryce Harper has X number of home runs through his age, you know, 21 season, and that's this versus that. And, like, that makes sense for a guy like Bryce Harper. Mike Zanino's career chase line on this card, granted, this was his rookie year. With zero home runs, Zanino is 762 away from Barry Bonds' all-time record of 762. (laughs) That's on a baseball card that I own in my house. I want to meet the guy or gal who wrote that line. Like, what a thing. That's amazing. Such unintentional comedy or intentional. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's just like the snarkiest bit of silliness. So I think that's why I, I'm fascinated by them. There's just like this very funny snapshot of a player in time. And, you know, they give us this opportunity to sort of knowingly wink at one another when we see, you know, a, I don't know, a... A Jonathan Papelbon Nationals card or, you know, I'm just looking through the ones that are on my desk right now. So there's just, they're a very funny baseball artifact Um, and they take up a lot less room in my house than the bobbleheads do. So that's another good reason. You realize that much of your answer describes the way people would describe the BP annual, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Oh, okay. Just check it because when you were describing it, I was like, Okay, that's exactly how I would describe the annual. Funny, short to the point, telling a snapshot of people's career. I was like, yeah, that sounds like the annual, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. And, well, when, when, the, when we're doing it right. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Uh, well, Megan, I could, you know, literally I've got another 20 questions I could ask you, but I, I do think we should probably wrap it here uh, for the sake of time and for particularly just trying to be a little – conscientious of uh, your time and to thank you. So I'd love to give you a spot here for your plugs where people can find you uh, on Twitter, um, you know, where they can find your writing and, uh, you know, anything you want to plug. Sure. Um, Well, you can find me at Baseball Prospectus. Uh, My column is called Players Prefer Presentation. Uh, You can find me on Twitter 
Uh, I'm Meg Rowley. My handle is Meg Rowler, um, which people find funny. It's the greatest Twitter. It says me, they think it says me Growler. That's maybe my mad online alter ego. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy my work and come say hi on Twitter and say it nicely. <laughs> Well, uh, Meg, thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, obviously, huge fan of your work, and uh, just uh, thank you so much for joining me, and uh, hopefully we can get you on the show uh, sometime down the road. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. And that was the Banish to the Pen podcast with our special guest, Meg Rowley from uh, Baseball Prospectus. Uh, tremendous, uh, obviously a big fan of the Seattle Mariners, but what a talented writer, and uh, she's fantastic. Uh, big, big fan of her work over at BP, and... Uh, just always excited when her com- column comes out each week. So I uh, want to thank her for joining me and thank the uh, hires up here at Vanish to the Pen for uh, getting her to come on the show. So thank you, guys. Uh, that was a pleasure. So one quick shout-out, if I can. I'd like to give uh, a big shout-out and thanks to everybody involved with Vanish to the Pen, the writers, technical staff, the editors, and, and everybody involved. Uh, everybody's working very hard every day to put together a real nice product, and uh, I'm very proud of the work that we all are doing. So um definitely bookmark it check it out each day and uh don't just check the podcast out although um big shout out to the podcast but uh definitely check out all the work that's going on uh, on the site as well this is a wrap with uh, a reminder be nice to your fellow listeners